what a blessing that was, huh? That was incredible. So thankful for Ed and uh, Ken Mays and our new pianist, Lyle, over here who's helping us out and all the people from Masters and our own people. That's just beautiful. I mean, I really like that. I really appreciate that. So, hey, is Pastor Steve with us in this service? Just real quick, let me do a quick scan. All right, I don't see him, but you guys missed out. We got to sing happy birthday to him in our first service. He turned a big 8-0. So if you see Pastor Steve, make sure you tell him you love him, you're thankful for him. And that we sang as a church to him this morning. I think we'll forego that this service since he's not here with us. But uh, anyway, it was a lot of fun this morning honoring him. We're grateful for him. Again, if you see him, feel free to tell him happy birthday. All right, if you have a Bible with you, open up to the Gospel of John. We'll be in John chapter 13, and we're going to be looking at uh, verses 18 through verse 30. I've entitled this morning as uh, the, the sermon title for this morning is One of You Will Betray Me. One of you will betray me. We'll see that here in the text of John 13, 18 through 30. The Lord Jesus speaking in verse 18 says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his hill against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, Truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to hear the reading of our text this morning. I pray that you would use this passage of Scripture to challenge us and to convict us and to enlighten us of your truth and your grace through the gospel and through our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray as we look at this this morning, you would teach us how to be more faithful disciples. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Benedict Arnold was born in 1741 in the American colonies, and he died in 1801 in England at the age of 60 years old. Benedict Arnold was an American military officer who served as a general during the American Revolution. He fought for the American Continental Army before defecting to the British Army in 1780. George Washington had given him his fullest trust and placed in his command the fortifications at West Point in New York. 
Arnold planned to surrender the fort to the British forces, but when the plot was discovered in September of 1780, he hastily fled to the British side for safe haven. Benedict Arnold's name quickly became a byword in the United States for treason and betrayal because he led the British army into battle against the very men whom he had once commanded. A study of Benedict Arnold's life will reveal that long before he became the worst traitor in American history, he was a smuggler, he fought in multiple duels, and just like Satan, he was fueled by pride and by revenge. This turncoat sold his soul to the devil when he tried to surrender West Point to the British for 20,000 British pounds. When his evil plot was found out, Arnold was hated by every patriotic American, and he was never accepted back into English society either. Later, Arnold and his wife were greeted with hisses when they attended a theater in London, and he was lambasted in the English press as well as blocked from taking up any more positions in the army and in the East India Company. Alexander Scammell described Benedict Arnold's actions as, quote, black as hell. In his hometown of Norwich, Connecticut, someone scrawled the traitor next to his record of birth at City Hall. All of his family's gravestones were destroyed except for his mother's. Benjamin Franklin wrote, quote, Judas sold only one man, but Arnold sold three million. Close quote. Well, while there is no doubt that Benedict Arnold was the greatest traitor that America has ever known, Judas Iscariot was the greatest traitor that the world has ever known. Judas was a disciple, but he was also a thief, a hypocrite, and a devil. He was a backstabber, a double crosser, and a turncoat. Judas was a defector, a deserter, and a double agent. He was a mole. He was a snitch. He was a snake in the grass. And I know it may not sound like it right now, but the purpose of this sermon is not for us to throw stones at Judas, but rather to look within our own hearts and to examine our own motives and our own tendencies so that we can root out any similarities to that diabolical disciple. Are you a true disciple of Christ? Or are you a hypocrite? Are you a lieutenant in the Lord's army? Or are you working for Lucifer? Are you following Jesus to the very end? Or are you just floating down the river to see where it may take you? Jesus said, one of you will betray me. Does that get your attention? Does that make your ears perk up? Does that cause you to contemplate that he may be talking to you? In the previous verses, Jesus had washed the disciples' feet, and then Jesus had said to them in John 13, 14, If I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. And then in verse 15, Jesus says, For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. And in verse 17, we hear Jesus say, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. To be truly blessed you have to be washed by the waters of regeneration. 
And if you've been washed by the waters of regeneration, you can also receive the blessing of following in Christ's example by serving others. To be blessed, we are to live out in our lives what we know and believe in our hearts. Judas was a betrayer. He was not blessed. He was blind to his own sin. Judas was so close to Jesus, and yet he was so far away. This morning, I want to give you three headings in this sermon that will help us follow in the steps of Jesus as opposed to following in the steps of Judas. If you want to be a faithful, loyal disciple of Christ who loved you to the very end, then I hope these truths will encourage you this morning. Number one, let's look at the true depth of Christ's knowledge. And if you are taking notes this morning, here's your first blank. Jesus knows what he is doing. Verse 18, Jesus says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. When Jesus says here in the beginning of verse 18, I am not speaking of all of you, he's referring to the fact that Judas is in their midst. Judas may have had his feet washed, but his whole body had never been cleansed, meaning that Judas was not a Christian. Judas was not a true follower, and therefore he would not be following in Jesus' example. Judas doesn't really know the truth, and Judas will not be blessed for living out the truth. And this is why Jesus has already said at the end of verse 10 and also at verse 11, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that's why he said, not all of you are clean. Jesus knows exactly who you are. Jesus knows exactly what he is doing, and he made no mistake in purposely choosing Judas, even though Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him. This occurrence of Judas's hypocrisy and betrayal may have been a surprise to the other disciples, but it was not a surprise to Jesus. Jesus did not misjudge Judas's character. Jesus was not a victim of Judas's treachery, and Jesus was not under Judas's power. Jesus, excuse me, was simply carrying out his father's will and his father's plan. And the father's plan was that Jesus would choose Judas. That's why in John 6, verse 70, Jesus said, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. God is not scared of Satan, and Jesus is not deceived by the devil. God created the angel Lucifer, and God created Judas, and they both have a part in the plan of God. God ordained the events leading up to the cross, and Satan may think that he's getting his way, but this day belongs to God. Judas may think he's getting his payday, But what is really happening is something far greater than one selfish act of betrayal. What is at work is the good and gracious hand of God orchestrating all of these events in all of history to arrive at this very moment. And we see here in verse 18 that not only does Jesus know what he's doing, but that next blank says Jesus testifies to the infallibility of Scripture. You see there in verse 18 when he says, I know whom I have chosen, but the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. What we're seeing here is that Scripture will not be broken. God's Word is infallible. This means that the Bible is incapable of error. The Bible is never wrong. 
The word of God is absolutely trustworthy. The Bible is without flaw and is absolutely true. Jesus, the living word who became flesh, testifies to this fact. And Jesus always upholds the Bible. Jesus always respects the scripture of the Old Testament. Jesus always fulfills his Father's will. And the Apostle Paul even writes in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And so when Jesus says here in John 13.18 that all scripture will be fulfilled, and then he quotes from Psalm 41, verse 9, when he says, He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. This is a fulfillment of Scripture. In fact, turn to that passage in Psalm 41. I want you to see it real quick, because there's a little interesting history around this particular Psalm of David, Psalm 41. And in Psalm 41, David says in verse 9, Even my close friend, and whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Now, this is most likely David giving reference to one of his counselors by the name of Ahithophel. You may remember that Ahithophel was indeed a trusted counselor of King David. He was a man who was always at David's side. He was known for his wisdom, but Ahithophel turned on David. And when David's son Absalom ran David out of Jerusalem, it was Ahithophel who recommended an immediate attack on David's camp at a point where he was weary and vulnerable. Whereas Hushai suggested that the advice of Ahithophel that had been given is not good at this time. And he recommended a delay while a larger army was assembled to counter David's alleged strength. In 2 Samuel chapter 17, verse 14, it says, For the Lord has purpose to defeat the good advice of Ahithophel. So Hushai's advice was accepted, seeing that his advice against David had not been followed due to Hushai's influence. Ahithophel apparently concluded that the revolt would fail. And then he left the camp of Absalom at once, and he returned to Gilo, his hometown. And after setting his affairs in order, the Bible says that he hanged himself, and he was buried in the tomb of his father, 2 Samuel 17, 23. This account of Ahithophel is a pretty interesting story because it has many parallels with Judas. Ahithophel served as a counselor to David while Judas served as a disciple of Jesus. Ahithophel turned on David once it seemed more advantageous for him to be with Absalom, while Judas turned on Jesus once it seemed more advantageous for him to side with the Pharisees. One difference between the two stories would be that Ahithophel's plan did not work because Yahweh purposed to defeat his advice while Judas's plan, in a sense, did work out because it actually played into God's sovereign plan of redemption. Ahithophel and Judas were both traitors. Ahithophel and Judas were both close friends who betrayed their masters. And Ahithophel and Judas both hanged themselves. Now, if you'll turn with me also to Psalm 55, I want to show you another place where David experienced betrayal, this time by his own son named Absalom. 
and David discusses how he felt during the difficulty of suffering Absalom's betrayal, Psalm 55, verses 12 through 14, for it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him, but it is you, a man of my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. Both Psalm 41 and Psalm 55 foreshadow a similar experience that Jesus, the greater David, would have at the betrayal he would experience with Judas. Jesus' betrayer was not an obvious enemy who came against him, but a companion and a familiar friend. Not only do we see these scriptures being fulfilled in Christ with his betrayal, but there's another scripture in Zechariah 11, 12 through 13 that talks about how Jesus would be betrayed with 30 pieces of silver and those 30 pieces of silver would be thrown to the potter and there would be a potter's filled bought with them when you look at Matthew 27, 3 through 10 as a fulfillment of that Zechariah 11, 12 through 13 passage that talks about how Judas betrayed Jesus with 30 pieces of silver. And after Judas eventually felt bad about what he had done, he tried to return the money in the temple and he actually threw the 30 pieces of silver down on the floor in the temple and they took that money and bought a potter's filled with it. All that to say that long before Judas was born, the fact that he would lift his heel against Jesus and betray him for 30 pieces of silver was known by the Lord. This was foreseen. This was ordained. And this was even designed by God's eternal plan. Jesus knows what he's doing and scripture will be fulfilled. And in the same way, Jesus knows what he's doing in your life. And the principles of scripture are still fulfilled in your life, whether that be a difficult scripture of discipline or whether it be a more upbeat scripture of blessing for your obedience. Jesus will fulfill his word and he loves his word and he's an extension of his word and he calls us to follow his word and his word will never be broken. And this leads us to our next verse where we see that Jesus prepares his disciples for his arrest. Verse 19, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. This is showing us part of the positives in the midst of a big negative. The big negative about to happen, he's going to be betrayed. He's going to go to the grave. And yet there's a magnificent positive that we see where Jesus didn't want his disciples to be disheartened during his arrest. He didn't want his disciples to be disillusioned when they see all the chaos that's about to take place. Jesus wanted to both warn his disciples of this upcoming drama and prepare them to stay faithful throughout the good and the bad. See, part of the reason I'm a Christian is because it's good to be a Christian on a good day and it's good to be a Christian on a bad day because on your worst day, God's still at work. He's still working, and Christ wants to encourage these disciples not to get angry and not to lose heart and not to be discouraged when they see what's about to happen. Jesus wants them to stay the course, and if anything, the fact that Jesus is telling them now, before all this happens, ought to strengthen their faith to see and remember Jesus' wisdom 
and his prophecy come true. Because if the prophecy of his betrayal comes true, then we can know that the prophecy of his resurrection will also come true. We read stuff like this throughout John. John 14, 29, Jesus says, Now I have told you before it takes place, so that it, when it does take place, you will believe. It's in John 16, 4, Jesus says, But I've said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. The faith that we have in Christ is partly due to the fact that everything that he has ever said has come true. There has not been even one thing that Jesus has ever said that was a lie. There has not been one ounce of misdirection. There has not been any loss of the meaning of Scripture or the purpose of Scripture or the fulfillment of Scripture. If Jesus said it, then you can take it to the bank. And if he prophesied about it, then you can rest assured it will come to pass. And so this ought to encourage you today. We serve a God who speaks the truth. We serve a God who empowers his servants to fulfill his plan. And this ought to enable us to trust Jesus with all of your heart today. Even when you know you might have some bad days, like John 16, 33, I have said these things, Jesus said to you, that in me you have, may have peace, in the world you will have tribulation, or you will have troubles. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. So Jesus speaks the truth. You're going to have trouble, but I've overcome the world. You're going to have conflict, but I've overcome the conflict. You're going to be tempted, but I've prayed for you that you wouldn't ultimately, if you're in Christ, fall away. And so not only does Jesus know what he is doing, not only does Jesus fulfill scripture, not only does Jesus prepare his disciples, but he also, that next blank says, Jesus encourages his disciples in their mission. Verse 20, so in the midst of all this, he's reminding them, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Jesus is encouraging his disciples here that just as the Father has sent me, so do I send you. And if someone receives you, then they receive me. And if they receive me, then they receive the Father who sent me. Here is how Jesus says the same thing in the Synoptic Gospels, Mark or Matthew 10, 40. Whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Luke 10, 16, the one who hears you hears me. The one who hears, or excuse me, rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Now, at first glance, we may say, well, how does verse 20 work with verse 18 and 19? He's talking about Judas going to be betrayed, and all of a sudden he's saying, if people hear you, they're really hearing me, and they're hearing the Father. How does that fit in? I would say it fits in like this. Jesus is anticipating how the disciples may feel at a loss, how they may feel at loss once it comes out that one of them will betray Jesus. It will make the whole band of disciples look bad. It will reflect poorly on them as a group that they had a rotten apple in their bunch and others may not want to respect them or listen to them because one of them was a traitor. So I believe that Jesus is encouraging his faithful disciples and reminding them that their credentials do not come from themselves or from each other, but their credentials come from God. God sent Jesus into the world. Jesus selected 12 apostles, and even one of them was a devil. Even that apostle, the son of perdition, had a purpose. The other 11 would be Jesus' ambassadors on earth. And the other 11, and later Matthias and the apostle Paul, would all be faithful messengers of the gospel. The disciples are being encouraged by Jesus that no matter what 
happens to Judas. Even if one in our midst falls, even if one of our midst betrays, the rest of you can stand firm. The rest of you can still represent my gospel in the world. And when somebody receives you, they receive Jesus. And when they receive Jesus, they receive the Father. He's saying here that the disciples' effectiveness depends not on each other, ultimately, but on the Lord's. The failures of others does not ruin the efforts of the faithful. That's encouraging because some of us are going to fall. But the rest of us, with God's help, can continue to forge ahead. And I hope that you are encouraged with our Lord's omniscience displayed in these verses. Never doubt the Lord. He knows all things. He knows whom he has chosen. He fulfills scripture. He tells you beforehand so that your heart will be strengthened afterwards. So then when it does take place, you can know that Jesus said at the end of verse 19, he says that you may believe that I am he. Now, that word he is not in the original. It just says that you may believe that I am, which just so happens in the Greek to be that construction of ego eimi, where he says, I am, a reference to the Old Testament of Yahweh saying, I am that I am. So in other words, Jesus is saying, because I'm going to tell you this, and because it's going to happen, you can know I'm God. You can know that because it's going to come to pass. And so now that we've seen the depth of Christ's knowledge, let's now look at our second heading this morning, the true dignity of Christ's disciples. That first blank under this heading says, the true disciples stay faithful. True disciples stay faithful. Verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And so after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. The word troubled refers to an inward turmoil. It means to be stirred up. It means to be disturbed. We've seen this same word used twice already, describing what Jesus felt in John eleven thirty three 33, when he saw Mary weeping because of Lazarus' death. We see this same word used again in John 12, 27, when Jesus said, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this very purpose, I have come to this hour. This word troubled shows the humanity of Christ. It is not a sin to be troubled. Jesus was troubled about Lazarus' death and the pain it caused Mary and Martha. He was troubled when he considered the physical pain of the cross and the emotional pain of being separated from his father. And here, Jesus is troubled over the fact that his familiar friend, in whom he had shared his life with, is now going to betray him. This will happen. It has been predicted in Psalm 41.9 that we read earlier. It is now prophesied again in this very verse of John 13.21. But uh, what I want you to also consider here is that it is only one who deserts. Only one of the twelve will defect. Only one disciple will walk away. Eleven out of the twelve stay faithful. That's 92%. I would say that 92% is actually encouraging. While we don't even want one to slip away, I would say that if 92% of the people who profess Christ stayed faithful, that would be very encouraging to me. I mean, we see the numbers today is something like 75 to 80% of youth who belong to an evangelical church, who've made a profession of faith and attended youth group, walk away from the Lord when they go to college. That's three out of four. Walk away. 
We understand that they were never saved in the first place. But what I am saying here is, can you imagine how encouraging it would be if 92% of our youth stayed strong? Or what if 92% of the professing church just in America stayed true to Christ? That would be amazing. I mean, we've talked a lot about how discouraging it is that one would betray Christ, but I am also so thankful that the other 11 did not. They may have been afraid. They may have stuck their foot in their mouths at times. They may have even run away or denied Jesus temporarily, but the faithful disciples always come back. Be encouraged this morning, true Christian, that Philippians 1, 6 says, that I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion to the day of Christ Jesus. Be encouraged this morning, true Christian, that 2 Peter 1.10 says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. So what should we do? 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine ourselves to see whether or not you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Are you being a true disciple of Christ this morning, or are you one who will betray the Lord? You could be close to Christ. You could be sitting under the preaching of the word week after week and year after year, and yet none of it has taken root in your heart. You could have grown up in a Christian family, and yet you're still not a Christian. Judas had heard Jesus' teaching about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and yet he followed his father, the devil. Judas had heard Jesus' teaching about loving your neighbor as yourself, and yet he was a disloyal friend who turned Jesus over to the wolves. Judas had heard Jesus' teaching about how you can't serve both God and money, but he chose money over God. Judas had heard Jesus teach about how blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And instead, Judas hungered for material wealth, and he thirsted for all the things that money could buy, and his soul is now rotting in hell forever. When we hear Jesus say, one of you will betray me, we should all listen up, because he could be talking about you. Talking about one out of 12. How many would that be in this room? 1 John 2.19 says they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not all of us. True disciples stay faithful. And true disciples also, your next blank, true disciples, they want to expose the imposter. I really like verses 22 through 25. It just gives us a little bit of an inner working dynamic of these disciples. They look at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? I think it's very interesting that the disciples all look around. I mean, you kind of almost expect they're all going to look at Judas and kind of point at him and be like, well, that's the sketchy one. That guy right there is probably him. But they don't do that. They kind of all look around. They don't know who Jesus is talking about. Not only that, but Peter motions to John, who is the disciple whom Jesus loved, to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. They're all reclining around the table. 
as was the custom of the first century at a formal event, probably leaning in on their left arm, eating with their right arm, and it seems as though John were positioned right next to Jesus, leaning back on his bosom, as the NASB said, which simply means Jesus' side, possibly even leaning back against his chest, which just really shows the proximity, the closeness of their relationship. Jesus had taken John under his wing. John was a disciple whom Jesus loved. Jesus loved all his disciples, and he loves you and he loves me. But he had a special relationship with John. All the commentaries say that the one whom Jesus loved is a reference to John. Why? Well, partly because John never used his own name in writing, and yet, based on syntax and ruling out all the other possibilities, and based on the fact that this phrase is used six times in this gospel, it is, seems clear that John is referring to himself, the one whom Jesus loved. It's like he used it for the first time here in this verse, and then he liked it so much, it had a good ring to it, and he's like, I'm going to use it five more times. And I think that's okay. I think that's appropriate. I think you could use the same phrase. Hi, my name is Adam. I'm the one whom Jesus loves. <laughs> you could do the same thing. Each one of us in Christ, it's a reminder that he loves you and that he died for you. And by the way, if you're going to say, I'm a disciple whom Jesus loves, that word disciple should place some responsibility on you to follow Christ. A, discipler, a disciple is a learner and a follower. A disciple is someone who's been in an apprenticeship. And so if you're going to say, I'm a disciple whom Jesus loves, it emphasizes both Christ's love for you and your desire to follow him. I also really like how Peter and John want to find out who the defector is. Curiosity oftentimes gets the best of us. But do you know why I think they wanted to know? Sure, I think they're curious. But I also think there's something else going on here. Because I think that it's possible that they wanted to take care of the traitor right then and right there. I mean, if Peter cut off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest, then he might have even slit the throat of Judas right there in the upper room. I mean, at this moment, the disciples may have thought of themselves more of as David's mighty men than as disciples of a meek and gentle Savior. They wanted to take care of business, right? If you're going to mess with Jesus, then we're going to ask you to step outside and we'll take care of this right now. Just like Ehud, the left-handed man in the book of Judges, killed the Moabite king by shoving his sword into his gut and the fat closed in over the blade or the handle. You know you like reading that. You're like, wait, wait. My kids are always like, hey, Dad, read that, read that again. What? Dad, read that part again. I'm like, kids, come on, it's not the point. No, read that part again, Dad. I mean, it's just gross, right? This, but this happens, right? This is how things happen. Joab took Abner aside in order to avenge the blood of his brother. Joab stabbed him in the stomach, and he died. There is a sense in which they want to know so they can take care of business, while the New Testament never supports violence. There's a sense that they want to hold that brother accountable and do a little church discipline right there. Right. So Ephesians 5, 11 through 12 says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So in other words, they're like, Jesus, you're telling us something bad's about to happen in our midst. We want to expose this. We want to get this out into the light. That's part of the dynamic of a true disciple. They don't just turn a deaf ear to that. They don't just say, oh, sweep it under a rug. We've got to deal with this. This is an issue in our church. 
we got to deal with this issue. True disciples stay faithful. True disciples expose sinners. But I could also say here that true disciples, your next blank, realize that they too are vulnerable. And we get that from a synoptic account of Mark 14, 18 through 19, talking about the same occurrence from a little bit of a different point of view. Mark 14, 18 says, And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, is it I? In this account given by Mark, we see that after Jesus told them that one of you will betray me, they were sorrowful and became introspective. Sorrow is an appropriate feeling to experience after hearing such sad and devastating news. But sorrow in and of itself doesn't go far enough. The disciples become introspective. They began to look within their own hearts to see whether or not there would be any sin or evil intentions within them that would cause them to do such a thing. This is the attitude of, but for the grace of God, there go I. This is the understanding that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. This is the prayer of David in Psalm 139, and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I love how the disciples are like, is it I, Lord? Oh, that we would have that same humility and that same brokenness that if we were to be examined before the eyes of our Savior, that we would be quick to say, Lord, is there something in my life? Am I somehow contributing to this issue? Oh, that we would do that in the midst of an argument or a fight with our loved ones. Oh, maybe the problem's me. I thought all this time it was you, you wretch. But is it I? Could it be me? True disciples heed the warnings of Jesus and of Scripture and will look within their own hearts to see if there are blind spots that need to be revealed, dark places that need to be brought into the light, and sinful motives that need to be washed away by the blood of the Lamb. Praise God that Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And Jesus makes us new by his power and he enables us to overcome the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. The true disciple is free from sin, free from deception, free from darkness, free from the desires of this world. But true disciples know that they are vulnerable and so they stay close to Jesus and they keep short accounts and they examine themselves in light of his word and that's why we need to be close to Jesus every single day it's not enough just to be at church on a Sunday it's not enough to go to summer camp one time a year it's not enough to show up at a conference you need to be with the Lord every day in prayer every day worshiping as a family every day examining your heart before God every day You need to ask the Lord and you need to ask others, what issues do you see in my life where I could be going astray? I need a trusted friend. I need a a biblical counselor. I need a pastor. I need a mom or a dad to show me how I can be a faithful disciple. And so we've seen the true depth of Jesus's knowledge. We've seen the true dignity of Christ's disciples. Let's look at our third heading this morning, the true identity of Christ's betrayer. Your first blank under this third heading is Judas was honored by Jesus to the very end. Verse 26, Jesus answered, 
It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now I say that Judas was honored by Jesus to the very end because Jesus was never unkind to Judas. Jesus never mocked Judas. Jesus never spit in his face. No, Jesus chose Judas as a disciple and he gave him close proximity to his life and ministry and Jesus even washed Judas's feet. And at this point in the narrative, Jesus honored Judas by giving him this morsel of bread. This would have been a piece of unleavened bread which was dipped into a mixture of bitter herbs, vinegar, water, salt, crushed dates, figs, and raisins, and to be given the morsel by the host was to be shown special honor. Now this sign apparently was not clear to all the disciples, and it's worded differently in the Matthew and Mark accounts, Matthew 26, 23. He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me, Mark 14, 20. It is one of the 12, one who is dipping his head into the dish with me. So while all the disciples may not have known exactly what was going on, it is still clear that Jesus was extending one final gesture of grace to Judas. A host giving a morsel of bread to a guest was a sign of friendship. How ironic that Jesus' act of friendship to Judas resulted in Judas's betrayal of that same friendship with a kiss. The Bible says that Jesus is a friend of sinners. It doesn't mean he condones sin, but he still loves people, even sinners. It's almost as if this was Judas's last chance to reconsider. Judas's last chance to regain his composure. Judas's last chance to repent of his direction of secret betrayal. And while it was ordained that Jesus would go to the cross, and it is also true that scripture must be fulfilled, it was also Judas's choice to sin. God did not force Judas to sin. Judas was willingly and sinfully acting in accordance to his own depraved nature, and he made his choice to throw his lot in with the devil. How about you this morning? Maybe you're stuck in some sin. You've been contemplating. You've been thinking. You've been flirting. You've been entertaining in your mind some sin. And you haven't made up your mind yet if you're going to do it or not. You could be flirting with another person at work and you're this close to committing adultery. You could be contemplating taking another drink and you get drunk again. You could be contemplating some scheme and you become somebody who's trying to admit their kids into USC. Right? You just don't know. You don't know where you may be, right? We're all tempted with stuff that you, just, you wouldn't think you would ever be caught in a trap like that, and all of a sudden you're so deceived, you're in so far, you don't know what to do. So maybe if Jesus were here today, he would be offering you one last chance. He would be offering you a morsel of bread. He would be showing you favor and honor. And if he were to offer you that morsel today, how would you respond? 
Well, verse 27 tells us how Judas responded. Your next blank says Judas was hijacked by Satan, but was still fulfilling God's plan. Verse 27, then after when he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. This is one of the darkest and most terrible expressions found in the Bible. Just think about it. Satan entered into him. Now in verse 2 of the same chapter, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So we see that first Satan put it into the heart of Judas. And once Judas had fully taken the bait, Satan has now taken over Judas's body. Judas went from being oppressed by the devil to being possessed by the devil. You've heard of demon possession? Well, this is devil possession. He's possessed by Satan himself, Lucifer, Beelzebub, the ruler of demons, the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air, has now taken full control of Judas. Judas is referred to as the son of perdition. In John 17, 12, it means that he's a man who, by his own choice to sin against Christ, was doomed for destruction. Jesus says in Matthew 26, 24, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. What started out as a temptation now has become a complete domination of the devil. And that's just how Satan works. He gets you thinking about something. He gets you wanting something. And when you act on that evil desire, you are on the hook. It's James 1, 14 and 15, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Beware that in your life, you don't even flirt with sin for one second. If you give sin an inch, it will take a mile. If you give sin a look, it will get fixated in your sight. If you give sin an ounce of interest, it will bury you under a thousand pounds of enslavement. J.C. Ryle writes about the devil's tactics, quote, first he suggests, then he commands. First, he knocks at the door and asks permission to come in. Then, once admitted, he takes complete possession and he rules the whole inward man like a tyrant. So Judas is now facing the point of no return. When Jesus says to him, what you are going to do, do quickly, he is not commanding Judas to sin. Jesus is simply saying, since you have already decided what you're going to do, go ahead and do it now. Because Jesus is actually in control of the timeline of Judas's betrayal. Jesus is sovereign over his captives. He's sovereign over the timing of his abduction. He's sovereign over the extent of his sufferings. He's sovereign over the moment of his death. So Judas may have been hijacked by Satan, but he's still fulfilling the plan of redemption. And that's how powerful God is. Even when Satan thinks he's finally winning, he's only losing. 
just when Satan thinks he's getting a leg up on God, he gets taken out at the knees. Just when Satan gets one of Jesus' disciples, Jesus still uses that evil alliance to accomplish the greater plan of God. What man? And in this case, even the devil meant for evil, God meant for good. And our last subpoint here says Judas was a hypocrite who fooled many. He did. He fooled many. No one knew at the table why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what you need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Verse 28 makes it clear that no one at the table fully understood what was going on. No one really knew exactly what Jesus meant when Jesus said, what you're going to do, do quickly. As far as they could tell, Jesus was sending Judas out to run some errands. Judas apparently had the respect of the other disciples, and they thought that he was either going to buy something that was in need for the Passover feast or that he was going to make a donation to the poor. Apparently, Judas had done a good job covering all of his tracks. No one suspected anything. Later, when the disciples learned of Judas's hypocrisy, they must have all felt betrayed. When George Washington learned of Benedict Arnold's betrayer, he said with great emotion, quote, Arnold has betrayed us. Then Washington cried out, whom can we trust now? When Judas immediately went out from the Last Supper at the end of verse 30, it says, and it was night. In any other gospel account, this reference might simply be a time reference, but in the Gospel of John, it assuredly communicates something more significant. Judas was now leaving the light of the world and heading into the darkness of sin. And for Judas, this spiritual night of gloom and remorse would never end. And so it is with every deserter of the faith. It is always night when men turn their backs on God. Titus 1.16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. A.W. Pink writes on this passage, quote, the seeds of every sin are latent in our hearts, even when renewed, and they only need occasion or carelessness or the withdrawal of God's grace for a season to put forth an abundant crop. As we reflect on this passage today, I want to give you seven lessons that we can learn from this account. You see it there in the last part where we typically do our take-home lessons to learn. I took these and slightly adapted them from a commentary on the Gospel of John. Let me just read them to you so you can jot it down and think about it and maybe go through these lessons together in your small group or as a family later today or this week. Number one, Judas is history's greatest example of lost opportunity. I mean, think about it. Judas had an inward track to Jesus. He was with him for three years. He saw Jesus at his best, and he saw Jesus at his best because Jesus was always at his best. And you got to think that there's a whole lot that he learned from looking at Jesus more than just the words we have recorded in Holy Writ. And yet he wasted it all. He squandered that opportunity. Number two, Judas is the foremost illustration of the danger of loving money. 
I told my kids this week that the number one reason why Judas betrayed Jesus because of his love of money. Watch out, kids. Watch out, teenagers. Watch out, adults. It's after us all the time. Got to have more to be happy. That's what Judas thought, and he sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Number three, Judas cautions us to look for evil within the church as well as outside of it. This was within the 12 apostles. We got to look within. We got to watch each other's back, check each other's motive, make sure that within our midst, we're holding one another accountable lovingly, but truthfully. Number four, Judas was living proof of Christ's patience, mercy, and kindness. Jesus loved his enemies and he cared for them. Number five, Judas demonstrates how the devil is always at work to destroy God's people. Satan doesn't want to cozy up with you. He wants to destroy you. And he's after those in the church, not just those in the world. Number six, Judas proves the deadliness of hypocrisy. You want to be a hypocrite? Go ahead. It leads to your own death and judgment. Number seven, Judas shows how there is nothing man can do to thwart the sovereign will of God, even in the midst of this awful thought of Judas betraying Jesus. It is happening according to the fulfillment of Scripture to accomplish God's greater plan of redemption. We can take great hope in how God orchestrates all things together for his will. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to dig into this text and to think about all the implications that we could discuss and learn and benefit from today. God, we never want to be a Judas. We never want a traitor within our midst. And yet, God, we want to be vulnerable. Those who would be wise enough to say, is it I, Lord? Help us to learn, God, about the importance of of examining ourselves before Christ, that we would want to stay close to Christ, that we would allow the eyes of Christ to search over every thought and intention of our heart and expose evil where you find it. Bring conviction. Help us to be faithful disciples who would be quick to expose the evil in our hearts and in our brothers' and sisters' hearts if it would help benefit them, that we might quickly confess and repent and be restored in a right relationship with you, that we might see Christ exalted in all of his glory, that we might be filled with a greater love for Jesus, knowing he told us these things before they happened so that we may believe that I am. Thank you that Jesus is I am. We worship you today. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. Once was lost in darkest night.